rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Mike Minokian, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're welcome, Bobby. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, man. Um, you are a dear, dear friend, and I know you know that, but just for the people listening, Mike and I go back many, many years. Um, I live in Nashville, as many of you may have gathered from the podcast, but I grew up uh, many years of my life in Miami, Florida. And while I was in Miami, uh, in the 90s, probably going back to the 90s, early 90s or so, uh, maybe even late 80s, I, I don't even remember exactly. Late 80s, Bobby. Yeah, late 80s, because you were in my wedding. So that's right. Actually, not only that, Bobby, we also needed a band for one of these outreaches we did at the park. Mid-80s. And you couldn't have been more 16 or 17 <laughs> years old with a group called Fire Escape. Yes, yes. Oh, gosh. Now you're jogging my memory and you're going back too far because I, I didn't even remember that. Um, that's fantastic. So, yeah. all right. So we have a lot of catching up to do. I think I'm so excited about this podcast because I've been wanting to get you on for a while. Um, I know you've been going through a lot of stuff in your life, which that's what this podcast is about. Um, let's, let's start from the beginning, Mike. So did you grow up in Miami? Where, where were you from originally? Originally, I grew up outside of Camden, New Jersey, just a few miles outside of Philadelphia, around Pensac and Cherry Hill. Moved down here, uh, I was about 17 years old, and I went to South Miami High for when it first opened. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then, and then you went to high school, then where did you go? What, what happened after high school? After high school, uh, my f- parents talked me into helping them opening up some fast food restaurants. Back then, it was called Chicken Unlimited, and we had one in Miami, off uh, near the airport, and one in Homestead. Mm-hmm. And so, I worked in the family business for a number of years, and I ran the one in Homestead. I actually bought a nice boat back down in the Keys, and back in seventy-five, seventy-six, I had a thirty-eight footer I was living on. And I was thinking, I'm 21, 22 years old, Bobby. I have a 38-foot I'm living on. I have a 21-footer on the other side to go skiing with. I had a, I had a 650, no, 750 Triumph Bonneville, 750 Bon. Uh, I had all kinds of motorcycles, and I had trucks, and I had a TR6. Mm-hmm. And I'm 21, 22, thinking, I got everything, bro. Wow. Wow. And then, um, so so talk to me about your 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 early young adulthood. What was that like? I mean, what was it like at 21 years old in Miami running a business, having all the toys? It sounds like you were making good money. What what tell me about your lifestyle? My lifestyle is, it was actually kind of strange. I met someone, got married I think at 22. But it was really weird. I I became a different person. I was almost like my dad in so many ways. I married a nice young lady from a homestead. And uh, she lived with me on the boat, but I was so verbally abusive, just like my father was. And after a year, a little over a year, she literally had to get out of the marriage for her own sanity. Well, that took me down, uh, really down a rabbit trail. So I packed up out of the Keys, moved up into uh, Miami. Actually, I was living on the Miami River. And that was a culture that was totally foreign to me because it was run by a lot of, we had a lot of mob down there and especially where i was docked that was the cuban mob and they would bring drugs and everything in as long as i kept my mouth shut uh, <laughs> I, I was fine there and and you're talking about a, a realm of perversion that is undescribable with mm. that, that drug culture and the people you think that would be involved when you think it'd be somebody that's struggling middle class lower class homeless but these were very wealthy people that were having the, the cocaine parties, the orgies, and everything else. And it was really uh, a sickening life. Well, I went into a, a, a realm of depression. I mean, talking about going into deep depression. In those days, they didn't medicate like they would do today. So I would go to a psychiatrist every week. And back then, it was like 60 or 80 So you're like your mid-20s then? or what, what? I was about 24, okay. 24, 25. And I was going to him for a while. One day, I frustrated the guy. He says, I'm wasting my money. He can't help me. And so I was uh, definitely a, a suicide watch. I could tell my mom would always send my brother over. I was just going crazy. I was on was drugs. It, was, it every- the, was it the failed marriage that kind of put you on that path? or what? what- I think it was everything. Yeah. 
I think it was, you know, honestly, Bobby, I think there's things in our lives that just happen and trigger certain things that how did I ever, how, how ever did I get to this place? Why did I say what I said? You, you know what I'm talking about. There's yeah, yeah. things that happen that that came out of me. I reacted that way. It was one of those things, but I went into a really dark place until I would say 19 at the end of 1981, things became, began to change slightly. That's awesome. Uh, I mean, uh, obviously, it's not awesome, but I mean, what, what <laughs> it was, was great, the- Mike, you're all screwed up on drugs, uh, hiding from your life from the from the mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so what? So what? What happened? I mean, was that the end of the? Obviously, it wasn't the end of the story because you're still no. here and you and you seem like a sane person. What What happened from there? Well, I was uh, I was trying to look for some reason out of life. I went to a friend's wedding. I was actually the best man. But I had such a reaction that I started to get sick and I was just vomiting day after day after day after day. And finally, you know, was able to get that under control and all. But I I started to search out different uh, spiritual aspects. I went to Christian Science of Mind, Unitarians, wanted to study some Edgar Cayce, Recarnation. But uh, one day I actually heard a radio program from an old tent revivalist. His name was uh, R.W. Schambach says, don't change that radio station. And I gave my life to the Lord behind one of my chicken fryers, like 7.30 in the morning. And that was the beginning of change. And then shortly after that, Clary, who was my wife for 34 years, came knocking on the back door. And she asked if I could cook some chicken for her youth group. I said, you're a Christian? She says, yes. And I said, so am I. So I actually gave her the chicken. And then we started to, uh, you know, get together Mm. at that time. Wow. So, so you became a Christian. You weren't brought up in a Christian home, right? Or were you? No, I wasn't. Okay. Okay. So you, so you go from like living this very depressed kind of um, playboy life where you weren't finding a lot of fulfillment, drugs, alcohol, sex, and um, all of a sudden things kind of – was it like night and day for you or what, what was the change? It wasn't, you know, one of those totally night and day. But the one thing that really stood out for the first time in my life, I actually felt I was loved. Mm. But all the other things were still there. I was maddic. I'd be excited, overwhelmed. I'd get burned out, and I would be depressed. Mm. Things didn't change all that easy for me, Bobby. Yeah, yeah. So, tell me about Clary. What what was her background? Clary was out of Trinidad. Mm-hmm. And then she lived in England for a number of years, and she became a nurse, a head nurse in a psychiatric ward. I always told people we met there, but that's not true. But um, <laughs> So she understood you. <laughs> basically, I think she did. And it was interesting. The day we met, and I told her as a Christian, I gave her the food, and she takes the food, went to the youth group, and then later on she told the, the senior pastor that this guy gave her the food. And, and he says, you're going to marry him. And she says, no way. He has bad breath, sunken eyes. Bobby, I was probably about 145, 150 pounds back then. And I'm, what, I'm five foot 11, so you can imagine how skinny I am. I was back then. And, and she says, there's no way in the world I'm going to marry this guy. Well, I asked her to reach out with some of my employees. I started to reach out to them, and we started working with the employees. I started working with our youth group. And things just really you know, blossomed. It just really grew. But clearly had an interesting background. She was sexually abused by her father. Mm-hmm. Then her her uh, uh, mother, not mother, we call those people that at a baby dedication you have uh, a godparent. Right. Came and took her to one of the revivals in Trinidad, and she gave her life to the Lord. But it was very interesting. She was so tired of her father abusing her. Before she left for that revival, she put a butcher knife underneath her pillow. So the next time the father came in, she was just going to kill him and then kill herself. But after she gave her life to the Lord, uh, the father could never touch her. So then she decided, I want to be a missionary nurse to um, England, uh, to India. So she goes to England for a training. At that time, unfortunately, she got raped and had her son, Simon. And it was years later, she came over to the States. And um, I think she came over in 79. And I met her in 81. And um, actually, we got married in 83. Mm. Wow. That's heavy. Um, 
Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. So what what was your early marriage like? Was it different than the first one? It was it, it was pure hell for her <laughs> and pure hell for me. I don't know how else to put it. You know, she was abused, and so sex was something that represented pain and abuse and hate and violence. Wow. Now I had a deviated lifestyle, not deviated with, but in, with the, the things in the river with women and stuff like that. So you had two totally distortion what marriage or love or sex was all about. Right. It was pure hell for her mm. and for me. Wow. How long did that hell last? I mean, did you get through it? Did you ever get through it? What? What did you get help? What? How did you well, survive? We, we, we we got we got through it. Um, she never really could admit being molested by her father to a number of years later. I would say that would have been 1987. And uh, at the same time, I was you know I realized that I needed to change because I saw the abusive habits that I had with my first marriage coming into this marriage. And you know you go through the counseling, and sometimes that works, Bobby. It's great. Sometimes you you know. You, you know, you, you get help and you work on these things. You get self-help books. But I've never been a person that really works for. And I would just spend time and I would go away and I would spend sometimes seven days in prayer and fasting. I've been up to 30 days that way, knowing that I'm such an ass. Unless God could change me, there's no hope for me. At mm-hmm. the same time, Clary was, you know, reaching out for healing uh, for her because she realized the distortion that she had for love because of how her father uh you know, molested her, and then she's raped and has a son, she realized that she needed freedom. She actually wrote a book called Set Free, and that book talks about being healed, how God healed her through the sexual abuse over the years. Mm. And I would say, you know, we, we had a both, we made a commitment that when we married, that there's only one way out of this marriage, is death. Mm. Nothing was going to break us up. There was times she... She would cry out, what, what in life did I do so bad that I had to marry this guy? <laughs> and honestly, there's times that I felt the same way. Yeah. And, you know, we think about marriage, Bobby. There's times, you know, you just love this person. But the pendulum has a way of shifting. And sometimes you hate that person with the same intensity that you love them. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, it's crazy the way it works, right? It's, it uh, is. It's funny. You know, this is probably the first time. That I'm actually talking about these things in the past, uh, what, 19, 20 months. So yeah. it's kind of weird to you know, have this conversation, but it's probably good that I, that I am doing this today. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's hold that thought because I want to get to that because that's, that's a pivotal event. Um, so you guys worked through this. You're, we did. You're we going did. through it. And, and it was probably shortly after that time, maybe in the mid-80s, that we connected – what were you guys doing at the time? And, you know, I know you were running uh, an organization, a nonprofit in inner city Miami, reaching out to homeless men. Talk a little bit about that and how that came about. Yeah. When I first met you guys, um, I just left the fast food industry. I really felt a calling and to live by faith because at the same time as we were stepping on faith and develop a ministry called Rock Ministries and getting the nonprofit set up. We had a number of fallen ministers, television evangelists, that were you know raising money for personal needs, and then there was affairs and things like that. And so for Clary and I, it was very, very important that we trust the Lord for our provisions and not use any trickery or you know hypocrisy or whatever to get funds to you know to take care of ourselves. So when you met us, we just started that life. I think we were living in a little efficiency somewhere, and. Um, and so we were just beginning the ministry. At that time, we were going down town once a week on Sunday, and we would prepare anywhere from 200 to 300 lunches. And then we would have a, a gospel meeting, you could say, on, right on the streets. We'd bring somebody to do worship. we share the gospel. But at the same time, we wanted to do an outreach in our community, and we found out about a band, Firescape. We came to the church that you were involved in, and that's how you and met. you and I met. But then when we moved downtown, you started to come down with your group and and you know a little bit more about that. Yeah, yeah. So I was, you know, you were a social justice warrior before it was cool, right? 
Um, you were you were down there in downtown inner city Miami, and I always tell my wife if her parents knew where I was taking her because this was even before we were married. Um, and this was back in the eighties, so you yeah. know, people. I tell people all the time. They say, "Oh yeah, I went to Miami Beach. It was so cool. It was so hip. It was awesome." I'm like, "Well, it hasn't always been that way." No. And um, back in back in during those ages, those times, it was your typical inner city. Homeless problems, um, you know, poverty, um, you know, it was prostitution on the streets. It was your it was your typical kind of stereotypical inner city Miami back in the day. And um, what was beautiful about what you guys were doing and what I was drawn to at the time was you weren't just like talking about helping people or talking about the love of Jesus or talking about what Jesus stood for, you guys were living it. It was, here's here's a couple that moved, who sold their thriving business to live in the inner city to help guys that were literally on the street feed them and say, if we're going to make a, a difference, then I'm going to have to go down there and, and do it and be the hands and feet and take literally seriously what Jesus said when he said, if you've done it to the least of me, uh, to the least of these, you've done it unto me. And um, that that was powerful. And sadly, I had never seen that in my, um, in my church or in my everyday life because uh, it's one thing to talk about it, but, you know, you guys were doing it. So, so talk to me a little bit about that. Was that um, – was that something that that was hard? That was a big decision that you guys just woke up one day and say we need to do this. What was the process of like moving into well, the inner city and starting that? Well, a number of things had happened. We were doing the street meetings, and then we would do follow up, and we realized that we needed to get a place so we could take them from the streets to a place where they could get cleaned up and and run some type of a program to help them overcome the drugs and all, and then get them back in the community. At the same time, uh, what forced me out of the business, there were some decisions being made, and we were actually going to purchase the the business from my brother and and my my father's interest, and they wanted to start another business. And so, Clary and I, we were de- you know developing plans to basically put in the loft because we had one of those. This is a shopping plaza. You had a huge ceiling, you know, so we could put a loft up there and bring in live music, entertainment, even having like coffee and drinks up there way before you even had the coffee shops. Right. And everything was going to that way. Then one day my parents and my brother came to me and says, well, we decided that uh, we're not going to leave the business and you have to change. I said, what do you mean I have to change? Well, I used to play Christian music and then I used to pray with my, you know, with the the staff uh, and we would just have really good staff and and, and ships. But one year... um, a number of times we we would put like different things up for Christmas, you know, instead of just putting Santa Claus on, we put some uh, biblical statements, uh, you know, about Christ and things like that. And this particular lady came in and she says, uh, who put that there? And I said, I did. She says, I find that very offensive. And being polite as I am, I just said, thank you. Well, she turned out to be with, I think she was one of the ACLU lawyers that made my family very nervous. And my family didn't understand the rights that we had that we didn't have to bow to this. Well, anyway, my, they came to me and said, you're gonna have to change. We don't want you to play Christian music anymore. You can't put any Christian uh, messages on Christmas up there. We're going back to the ho-hos and all this. And you can't pray with your staff anymore. So all I said to them, let you know what we're gonna do in seven days. So Chloe and I decided to fast and pray. And we heard so clearly, it's time to live by faith. By faith. Trust me in this. And that's how I left the business. Well, then we continue to live by faith. God would be providing. We start off with a little efficiency and all. But then as we were looking for a bigger place, this is really cool. We're looking for a place to take the guys off the street. And so we were driving around for months, basically, looking at this building, that building, didn't have the money. Really, because you're just literally just trusting God. Well, one day, Clary had this dream. And in the dream, she sees this big, beautiful house. And Jesus is on the porch. And she says, Clary, here's the house for you. And he, she, he waved her in, and then she woke up. Well, she did ask the Lord one question. Where is it located? And it was like, Lord says, five miles radius around Jackson. Well, I can be almost anywhere. Well, 
that particular day, we were looking for efficiency because we had to move where we were at. And we wanted to be downtown. So we went to look at this place, Bobby, and it was just a nightmare. You could see through the baseboards where the miles have eaten up holes and cockroaches and all. And my wife was freaking out looking at this. And then she said to the guy, you know what we're really looking for? Well, it was the lady. Uh, we're looking for a place bringing the homeless and all. She says, I had the perfect place for you. Well, as we're walking, there's a big uh, home with uh, cathedrals and all. And Clary goes, wow, that wasn't my dream. She goes, well, that's not the home. She says, I know it's not my home, the home. But as soon as we went around the corner, Bobby, and she saw the house, it was the exact house she had in her dream. And it was a 12-bedroom, five-bath house down on Biscayne Boulevard and 22nd Avenue. And so she was excited. I'm excited. And uh, and then we go back to the office. This is the cool part. We had a meeting with the, the realtor and all. We needed $3,000 to move in. Go back to the office. And the most interesting thing happened. My dad's sitting there, and he says, here's $3,000 from your shares from the year before. I said, wow, perfect timing. And that's how we got the place. That's amazing. That's amazing. And I remember that house. It was a really cool old house, and it was, it was a good size. And yeah. I remember going down on a regular basis and helping and helping to feed and, and participating. Um, and it wasn't that you were doing anything um, uh, new or different or special. It's just that the spirit that you were doing it was you really, really loved these people. And that's what I appreciated. It wasn't out of obligation. It wasn't out of um, some sort of ulterior motive. But you were just there loving people well. And I really, really – that has been – and I got to tell you, I probably have never told you this. Uh, that has been uh, something in my life that I've always returned to and have told my children. Mm. I've told other people about those experiences. They were very, very um, transformational for me. So so thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for telling me that. You know, I think one of the reasons is that Clary and I both had very painful lives growing up. Mm. And uh, in some ways, I, I had to... I had everything you wanted a natural, but emotionally and spiritually or whatever, we were both came out of extremely dark places and, um, and we were both very grateful for what we have received from the Lord. And so we did it out of compassion, not out of duty, not out of, you know, anything being forced on us. We did it simply because this is what we believe God wants us to do. And they were hard years. I'm going to be honest. You take in you know, 10, 15 guys that are hardcore on the streets and you bring them into your house, you know, you, you, you have such a personalities that is beyond anything you could cope with. And it was very tough sleeping at night. One of us had to be up 20, you know, we had to have somebody around 24 hours up with, between Clary and myself most of the time so that people wouldn't bring drugs and stuff in like that. So it was a really hard life that we lived doing it. But it was probably some of the greatest things that we've ever experienced, especially the way God not only provided the funds for the place, but protected our lives often. That's awesome. You know, there's a lot of people, Mike, that um, that that listen to this podcast that have been burned by the church, that have that struggle, um, that are, I, I guess if you talk of the, the spectrum of faith, they're all over the board. Um, and, and what's compelling about them to them is the person of Jesus, but what's repulsive to them many times is the church. Um, I, what I found in my young life was in, in, in working with you and helping with you and seeing your example was I, I, I saw so much of Jesus and I saw uh, not a lot of organized religion. Can you talk to me a little bit, bit about that and talk to me? Was I interpreting that correctly? Uh, uh, I, I, I think so. Let me give you some of the, my first examples in the, in the church. And the, and the first church I went to was Open Bible. And it was a Pentecostal church and it was there for years, but it was the only people that were left were aging people, 70 years old plus, And there was a few young people. Well, we had a tremendous growth in our youth. And Clary, when she had the youth group first started, it was like four or six people. Then we grew up to like 90 
and plus. But I remember one day just playing on the drums, just banging away, just having fun. And some over-spiritual woman starts coming in and screaming at me, voodoo, voodoo. And, and Bob, if you know anything about me, I can get unplugged sometimes. Right. And I called her an asshole in front of everybody. (laughs) 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 And so, so, you know, and it was like this crisis in the church. And I had to apologize for it, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember later on in life, I used to think to myself, if I met a Christian, I probably would not have become a Christian. Mm. I don't believe that now. Sure. I have met a lot of people who are really awesome, and uh, and I appreciate them, that motivate me, that are there, that have been there for me. And so I don't really feel that way. But I like to, like to share with people all the time, you know, that has nothing to do with who he is. Right. I mean, religion is religion. And so... Clary and I, we, we just really loved living the way we lived, and we spent a lot of time just really seeking him and seeking his will for our lives, especially downtown. And, and then later on, and was, you know, I know you probably want to come back, but when we moved out of Miami, and that's another story for another, for later, if you like, um, I ended up on staff in Sarasota as the outreach ministers and, so, and certain other ministries we were doing, and it was absolutely the worst thing I ever done was join a staff, <laughs> become, you know, become religious. I remember one lady came up to me and she says, and everybody likes to use religious terms. Brother Mike, you're such a nice guy. I said, of course I am. I get paid to be nice to you. <laughs> and, and so you know, that's how dysfunctional I became. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's so true. And you know, I, I think that there's so much to be said about the person of Jesus and what he said and the uh, actual what has then come out of it. I, I was listening to something recently, and one of the points was Jesus said maybe two times in all of Scripture, recorded Scripture, that we had anything about a church. And the main thing was, well, where two or more gathered, uh, there I am. And then he said, uh, Peter, uh, on this rock, I build my church. And there's some controversy even about that scripture that there's a possibility that it might have been inserted later um, to to bolster some sort of organized institution. But that's neither here or there. Again, t- that that's another discussion. But it, it's interesting to see, to see that even Jesus um, said very little about this structure and huge organization that we spend so much time and energy on and money when uh, he says love God and love people that's the most important thing right absolutely and um, you know it's it's like we don't, we really don't understand something you think about this I was in uh, Trinidad last May and in, in Trinidad they have a, a, a movement uh, for gay rights like we've had here what 10 15 years ago and so the church decided to go out they're going to have a demonstration against them hmm. and and I was thinking you know what you're doing you're you're totally isolating these men and women from thinking that God could ever love them or want to be with them or to show them how much they are accepted and loved yeah, you know, and I realized that I don't have to judge people. I don't have to condemn people. I just want to love you. I tell you, Bobby, that frees me up just to love people as he loves people. Yeah. And, well, and he was accused was, of the, he was accused of the same thing, Mike. You know, they couldn't stand that he hung out with the prostitutes and the tax collectors, and I'd be willing to bet that some of those prostitutes were same sex prostitutes. And he said, uh, "These are these are the people I love. These are my sheep. These are yeah. the people that I've come for." Um, it's funny how uh, and ironic the whole thing is. Is he was he was accused of hanging out with those people, and yet he couldn't stand the religious people. <laughs> I know it's the only time he ever got a day by his face was a religious person, right? Right. And so that's the thing that I have really loved and enjoyed was the presence. And the love of a living God in my life. Mm. Even when I screwed up, I can actually feel him saying, son, I knew you were going to do that. What are we going to do about it? It's just so, so awesome. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Okay, so I know that Miami ran its course for a while. You guys moved. You came back. Let's fast forward to the past um, 
three years. Okay, let let's let's go. Where were you living uh, three years ago? Well, in 2013, we actually moved back into Miami. We still with one of the young men that was the leader of the gang when we were working with the gangs downtown. Mm. And we stood at his place for a number of months till we found a, a, an efficiency. So we moved right into the North Miami area. And then we ended up in a place called Biscayne Park. And so we little by little start reaching out and we started to uh, have a Wednesday night rap session where people come in. I could, we would cook for them and then we just talk about scripture, how it affects their life. And, and people will share what's going on in their lives. And we did that for uh, about four, four and a half, about four years, I would say. And then we even started doing a Sunday service, which I really never felt led to do. But there was a church that uh, people got hurt and they knew us and they really want us to just love on them. So we did that for a season. And uh, that we I stopped maybe 20 months ago. Okay. Um, you're back in Miami. You're doing that. Things are – and then – Tell me what led up to the big uh, event in your life in the past year and a half, two years. Well, my wife passed away. Okay. It's and, still hard to talk about. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you, you think about this. There were two people that we, we, we would get up. We would spend our time together with the Lord. We would work together. We did everything together. You know, it's only maybe an hour or two or separated in time where I would do my street walks and prayer and meeting people or go shopping. But we did everything together. And there was always a safety in that where we would pray for our needs. As you know, we were living by faith. I still live by faith. Mm. And, you know, the Bible says we're two or three, get, uh, ask anything or touch anyone, anything. You know, Jesus is going to be, well, you know what I'm saying. Two of you agree on any one thing, it shall be done. Right. And so. We had the confidence and, and everything. Well, then she got sick, and um, man, a year or a half, maybe two years before she actually passed away, and it was a blood clot. But it took the doctor's office two months to even discover that she had a blood clot because they didn't read the, you know, she came back from the specialist. Nobody even read her chart. Well, they got that under control. That was cleared out. But then she started to lose with the red blood uh, uh, cell count, I forget what you call it. It was supposed to be like 11 to 12 versus like 8. And nobody even told her. And then when we finally got to the emergency room, she was down to a 6, which is really dangerous. Right. So she would get two pints of blood. And they would run all kinds of tests, even for cancer or whatever. They couldn't find anywhere, anyhow, she's losing blood. So this was going on from December 17th. And we would go – and she would go into the hospital every two to three weeks because she'd get weak and all. And we had to send her back in to get um, two pints of blood. And then they started to treat her like she had some type of cancer on the cancer floor or some type of treatment. And nobody really explains things to you, Bobby. It's, it's, a, it's a really strange, lonely place. Right. But then they started to give her a prednisone and they started to build it up and, it's, and she started to swell up. But this went on. And then in May – uh, she was she was starting to you know feel a little bit better and all. They cut the prednisone down, etc. But she still had to get blood. But she was, she was clear to go. We were going to go to Sarasota because have, we have a place there and spend some time with the family. Well, that night it was actually it was May twenty eighth. We were preparing to take some friends to the. I think that is a is that Memorial Weekend, and we were taking some friends there with us. And went to the doctor. The doctor said she's fine. Everything looks good. And so that night, she, she was really tired. She went to bed. And about 11, 12 o'clock, she just might help me up to the bathroom. She felt weak. And I did. But then later on, about a half hour later, she's breathing heavily. And she, she said, I need a drink. So at that time, I called paramedics. And I called 911. I opened the door, put the light on. And as I got back into the room, she, she looked up. And it's almost like she threw me three kisses. Oh. And she passed away in my arms. Ah, uh. and and I don't even want to talk about it was like the paramedics that night. They were like doing training and all, and I'm in the midst of it, and it was almost like a joke. And, and finally, they cleared out, and I said, "Aren't you going to even close her back?" Because first thing I said, "Aren't you going to use the paddles?" Right. And they said, "Well, there's no sinus rhythm there, so they're doing epidermals." And so, and and I, they finally left. And I just lay there on the floor next to her. This is probably 2 o'clock in the morning. Right? And, and her dog, which is now my dog, Zozo. And uh, and the police officer was such a nice man, Biscayne Park here. 
Officer Lopez. I'll never forget this man. And so about five o'clock in the morning, he goes, Mr. Minoki, Mr. Minoki, did you call anybody? I said, I didn't know I was supposed to call anybody. Then they came and they, uh, and I never forget people like, it's just a routine to them. They're, they're so insensitive. There's a toe tag hanging out of this lady's shirt. I said, really? And as they took her away, my dog just screamed. So he knew that he lost his mom. Bobby, I can't tell you. I'm sitting on the couch five o'clock in the morning. You could have got a sword and cut me right in half. Mm. And that's there was no other way to describe the pain. Yeah. There's no way. I mean, thank God I actually talked to you without bawling. But after that, I have never felt so alone and so empty. I started mm. sharing with you that there are times I would literally pass out in grief. Other times I would pass out from drinking. I'm not advocating drink your sorrows away. I've never been a heavy drinker. Yeah. And, and I would just pass out on that. But I always felt the presence of God yeah. when I would come out of it holding me. Yeah. And there was other times I would just be out of my mind and I'm not even knowing I'm banging my head against the wall and the phone rings. And then I feel pain shooting through my body. Yeah. And then somebody would call me. It would be from Africa, England, Caribbean, or wherever. Say, Mike, God told me to call for you. You're in trouble. And this would be two, three, four o'clock in the morning. Wow. And and then people, you know, I really isolated myself. I don't really recommend it, but I've always been one of those people that I isolate. And I never went out my front door. I just go out the backyard. I, I really have a nice little place I rent, though. My landlord is so nice. The price I rent this place for is in, it's just a gift. And I just stay in the backyard, and then at night I go out and get food and all. I didn't want to see nobody. I didn't have conversations with anybody except a very few for the first few months. But I'll, I'll tell you, Bobby, I have never been more despair in my life. I get up to, to speak a couple of weeks later and do a message. I looked at everybody and said, I got nothing to say. Mm. Move on. And, and I, I have not been able to speak. This is actually the first time. And I used to do talk radio. And I was fairly good at it, but I'm yeah. listening to myself talk. I said, I never used to stutter like this or, or, yeah. or not be sure. But you know what? I don't give a flip. This is the best I could do right now, yeah. Bobby. Yeah, no, that's that's. thank you for sharing that. And I know that, you know, even though you said you started Rocky, you guys had a deep love for each other and a respect yeah. That wouldn't be on just the the romantic or the sexual or any of that, that there was something much deeper there. And to lose um, a spouse like that, I can't even imagine. It's I know that I know that that you've been through a lot of pain and um, a lot of hurt, but um, there's something there's got to be something in that that you're finding some sort in those cracks and in those pain. Um, there's something in that, that that's got to be redemptive. That's got to find there's, you're finding the deep, the depths of your humanity, but also finding hope in that is, is, is am I, am I saying the right things or, or am I well, way off? No, no, I think, you, listen, you know, it was, uh, you know, a lot of people would would send you like text or email or something saying, and there was one guy that I, I, I liked and I respect, but he tells me, uh, God has another wife for you. I was like, I didn't crash my car totally and I get another car. You know, it's like, it was, Carl and I had the most amazing, amazing walk together. We're living by faith. We're trusting God for our provisions and whoever God put it on their hearts to send the finances and it came in. And so we had this tremendous walk together. Even if I was overseas, I would WhatsApp or something and we would contact and we would spend time in prayer every single day. Even when she was in the hospital, I'm here at the house and I normally couldn't go to one, two o'clock in the morning um, in the afternoon because, you know, they're doing tests, but she would call me and we always spend time together. And then we didn't, you know, I didn't hang out with buddies. She didn't hang out with buddies. We hung out with each other. And so... It's like we, we have a lot of associates, a lot of friends, but we didn't go out with anybody, but they were there if we needed and they and we were there if they needed us, but we normally just kept to ourselves. And so we were both kind of odd people. I come out of a deep perversional sex related you know, things and pornographies and prostitutes and all that stuff when I was living on the river and drugs and all. She came out of from a other end where she was a victim and victimized all of it. And yet we were able to become the best of friends mm. and there was such a sincere love for one another and respect 
that there's no way to put a value on that. Yeah. But during this time, I realized that I never, you know, people say they love you and all this. And Bobby literally goes in one ear out the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just love you. And, and, you know, and I really do care about people. But I literally, for the first time, realized that I was loved. Mm. And, um, and I understood grief. I actually heard this message from an old Pentecostal preacher. And it was on YouTube. His name was Derek Prince. And I didn't really understand what I was going through until he broke down and shared the loss of his wife. Because your whole world stops. Even though you're still aging, it's still day and night, you're still eating, you die. I died with my wife that night. Mm. And, and I, you know, I even wrestled with him. I was up in the mountains back in Thanksgiving, November. And, and I was just saying, Lord, you've always been merciful to me, except this time. You allow me to be alive when I've asked you to take me home. This is the first time in all the years I've served you, you didn't show any mercy to me. But it took him like two months, Bobby, to really get through to me. And the, and, the, and the answer came so crystal clear. It was my mercy to keep you here so that you and Clary could finish what you guys started together here in Miami. And I can see that now. I'm embracing it. Do I like to be alone? No. Do I do I do I do I feel secure? No. Am I lonely? Yes. Do I want to go on dates? No. It's one of those you know things, and, and uh, yet I don't want to act like a spoiled brat. I lost his wife and all, and so I'm really working hard that when I go, when I leave the house, and I've been doing this from day one, I'm not going to take it out on anybody because what's happened to me because I'm having a bad day. I don't believe that people's lives. Now, let's be honest. Most people's lives really suck. Life is hard. Yeah. And and so I don't. I, I try to. It's always been my nature. You know, at least put a smile on your face if you can. But let me. Let me so let me just go around. So I started to do better. I started to go out to dinner. You know, some of the people that used to come to the services here. Clary had a friend. She likes to. You know, she would just check in on me and all and. And then we, you know, and I said, well, it's okay. It's your companionship now and then. And there was other people, you know, that I knew from Sarasota or different places. They would look on me and check up. And then the thing that was really blessed, the kids that we used to work with, the gangs that are in their 30s and all, they were coming around and taking me out and stuff like that. And I rejected them the first six months, but then I let them in. So I was doing really good. Uh, and then my nephew in England, we decided, okay, we, we spent time together. I went out to England a year ago, October. And fast and pray. What is what are we? What is the rock ministry going to look like? Uh, we call it the Boulevard of Hope, and we really had a great time, and we started to develop an outline. But then after that, I went back into depression and all. But then back in July, he came over, and we were able to go a little further and, and present to the board. And I tell you, I have the best board, Bobby. They supported me this whole time. They said we need to take two years. We'll still support you. I've never asked for the support. They just gave it to us, mm. and and I thought that was kind. So after 14 months, I started to get back into working with my nephew. My nephew's an amazing young man. That's another story for another day. And we're developing a ministry, so I was really excited. I got purpose. I'm getting up. I got things to do. I'm going out a little bit more often and stuff like that and having people over. I like to cook, and I like to have people over dinner. And I was doing great, and I went up to uh, the mountains for, and I was going to stay there for the month from Thanksgiving. I went to visit some friends in Washington D.C., visit my sister quickly after that. But I was going to stay in the mountains till like after Christmas. I didn't want to be home. And after being there a week, I get reined into. I got really bored. I didn't realize how boring I am. And so <laughs> I was talking to my nephew. He says, "You know, he's coming over in January because we got some work we need to do together." I said, "Man, I'm bored. Why don't I just fly over?" And we'll get some work done and hang out. And he says, that's brilliant. So I fly to, uh, I flew into uh, Manchester, England. And I flew there on the 16th. And I was supposed to leave on the 29th to come back home. And we had a great time. Christmas Day, I spent with them. We opened up presents and all. But Christmas night, I come down with a chill. And I was sick. I must, I think I had walking ammonia because I took antibiotics with me and stuff like that. And I'm not prescribing self-medication, people. And when I travel more than my – you know, I have doctors in the family, so they tell me, take this, take that, just in case you have a problem. And I was so sick, Bobby, that I had to get on the plane on Friday. Christmas was uh, – wow. I think it was Tuesday. 
No, I had to go to Manchester on Friday because I early morning flight. That was like three hours away. I stood at the hotel at the airport. Next morning, I get up and I didn't sleep all night. And I'm pouring sweat, and, and I know I'm in trouble. I get to the airport. I'm waiting in line to get a boarding pass. And Bobby, next thing I know, I wake up on the floor, and this young couple is so concerned that they thought I broke my head open. I must have fell hard. I didn't have no pain by the grace of God. And they were trying to uh, get, um, you know, do you need anything? Can I get a soda? Security came in. Paramedics came in. And Bobby, as I was coming to, I couldn't help but, you know, your mind plays tricks. I can see clearly. Are you coming to take me home? I was actually excited about <laughs> That's how much I enjoy life since you passed, okay? I'm coming home. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, and, I, and and then the paramedics, you know, they put the AKG, AKG, I mean, there's no heart problem. There's no, and my blood pressure and everything was back, everything normal. They just realized I was severely dehydrated because I haven't been able to drink anything or really eat anything. So I made a deal with them. They'll get me through security and everything if they take me to the food court and I eat before I get on the plane. So then I, I flew home. It's nine hours into Orlando. And Bobby, I'm, I'm sick. I'm depressed. I'm, I'm weeping. I don't want to be here anymore. And, and then I, I drive home three hours in that condition. Didn't sleep the night before. Long trip home. Drive home. And Bobby, I, I think the last month has been like reliving Clary passing. It was like I started to dream that um, she's in the car waiting for me. Or I'm waking up and I'm ready to reach over because I dreamt that she's still next to me in the bed. Mm. And I'll tell you, it is hard. But if I didn't have the people around me that I do now and you're one of them, there's no way in the world I would ever survive. And so Monday was – yesterday was the first good day I've had. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. First day since – you know, in three, four weeks. That's amazing. but I, I just want to say this, though. I don't, I don't believe in self-pity and all, although I give a lot of it, you know, you know but uh, to myself. You know, God is a good God. Mm. Why do I have to go through this? And I have this I, – in my mind, I always had this, but I never had to practice it. I believe that when we were born, God put in us whatever we had to go through so that we could get through the, the other side. And that's where I'm at right now, trying to cross over to the well, other side. Well, talk, talk to me about that, Mike. I mean uh, – Talk honestly, if you would, about, you know, people go through different, people talk about a crisis of faith. They talk about, you know, their own shipwreck. They talk about different things that, you know, you, you, you on your continued journey in your life, you go through these things. I know I've been through my own, you know, were there more, were there, were there seasons, were there dark nights of the soul? Was there seasons of doubt? I mean, here you are, you're, You've met someone, you're married for so long, you have a, a fruitful life, you're, it's built on this faith. All of a sudden, she's taken from you, or at least she passes on. What, is, what does that do to your, your, your trust and your faith? Was there ever a time that you doubted? Was there ever a time you just wanted to leave this world? Talk to me about that. Uh, actually, I would beg God to kill me. Mm. But I would not... I actually... Try death by hood. I was really, really nuts. I remember one day, and you know, we, we have a lot of racial tension anymore, more than we've had for years. And I'm in a parking lot, and this guy is a, a big, strong African American in, in his brand new SUV blocking the lanes. And it gave me this look like I want to get around him, like I'll, I'll beat the crap out of you. And I rolled down my window, and I looked at him, and I said, Listen, I don't care if you're an angry, strong, African-American. You're looking at a man in grief, and I don't give a flip. Move your car. And you know, I thought he was going to get out and kick my ass. He (laughs) He actually moved his car. (laughs) You know, those are the kind of things I would go through. And I realized that I couldn't go anywhere without losing my temper. Mm. I mean, I would just lose it on everything. And I didn't know when it was going to explode. Mm. And, and so I rarely would go out, but I would be so depressed. I don't think I slept for the first – I don't want to exaggerate, but she passed away, I would say, in like a year. And I'd be up every night pacing the floors, two, three, four, five o'clock in the morning until you pass out. And then I can only sleep till the sun comes up to like seven, eight o'clock. And then you're you're so tired, you're so numb, 
and, and you just don't know what to do. And I and I and I never doubted who Jesus is. I, I didn't have that issue, okay? Because I've just I've had the privilege of being in the presence of God, and that could be another story for another day. Experiences with God, and, and I just knew He didn't leave me because I, I know His word. But I didn't know how to live without clarity. You know, we we were just one. And you know, I'm going to be honest with you, Bobby. If if anybody's lost somebody and they're going through what I went through, good, because you know you had a great marriage. Mm. That's all I can tell you. How many people have great marriages today? How many marriages are actually going to make it anymore? I don't know. We throw away everything, you know. As soon as we have trouble, quit. And, and you know, I'm not thankful. But I am thankful that he allowed me to go through it. And even even up to recent days, I had, you know, when I had the dream that Clary's waiting in the car for me. And I'm not a dream interpreter. There are people that could do it. And I'm thinking, man, is God coming to get me? Wow. That'd be great. Wow. But I yeah. say this. Nevertheless, Lord, not my will be done, but yours. Mm. But, you know, and like I said, it's God's grace or his mercy to keep me alive to finish. And who knows, Bobby? Maybe life will begin so new and so exciting that I'll say, Lord, thank you for leaving me here. Mm. But that was hard for me to even say a week ago. Do you find, Mike, that you've been given more, that in through this process, do you have more empathy for people that are in pain and are hurting? Uh, I can't even watch a Hallmark movie without crying. How's that sound? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I watch, you know, or, or yeah, I can actually, I actually weep with people. I made a mistake the first year by going to a friend's sister's funeral. It, it took me down a rabbit trail that I really, because I was going through it all over again. Yeah. But it has made me care mm. in ways I had never knew how to care. I'm not saying I didn't want to care. I just didn't know how to care. Are you able and to so, see? That, are you able to see that as a gift yet? Uh, yes, yes, I do. Uh, maybe not. I a, don't know maybe not God's a wanted gift yet. <laughs> yeah. What's that? I said maybe I, not. I, I, I don't. Even, I'm shutting up. Go ahead and say it. I said maybe not a wanted gift yet. No. No. And yeah. I don't know exactly, Bobby, uh, who I am yet. Because, like I said, this is the first time I'm actually talking. And doing something like this, mm. I don't even know um, how those things are going to be in the future. I don't even know who I really am at this time mm. because I was always Mike and Clary. I love being Clary's husband. Mm. And when Clary was ill, I loved taking care of her. Mm. And then the thing is, though, when I was sick, I realized how much I miss her taking care of me. Because, oh. you know, she knew well, like this. If Clary was on the scene. She would have never allowed me to get that dehydrated, especially being a nurse. Right. And and that would have never happened. And she would have seen that I wasn't doing well because I'm one of those guys that want to keep doing things yeah. until I basically collapse. Right, right. And she would have caught that. Um, but, you know, am I a better person for it? I don't know, Bobby. I don't even know if I was a better person before. <laughs> I don't know if I'm a nice guy or, or I'm a piece of crap. Sometimes I just don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? <laughs> You know what? I, I, I've come to the point in my life, and I think I, I've heard other people say that um, being willing to live with the uncertainty and the mystery and not being addicted to certainty is the best place to be because then you're open to uh, whatever it is uh, that 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 you need to be doing and wherever else you need to be and um, you know, this, this thing that we call faith, this thing that we call God, um, is so much bigger and deeper, um, than we can even think or imagine. And so, um, the pain and the grief and the hurt that you've been through, I know, um, you're going to be blessed for it. You know, Jesus talked about, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's like, when you mourn, you're blessed. When you're poor, you're blessed. And we don't want to hear those words, especially as Americans. We want to say, well, I'm blessed when I have money. I'm blessed when I'm successful. I'm, and Jesus like, no, you got it upside down. Uh, I'm always going down the stairs and you're trying to go up the stairs. So I'm not sure how that works or why it works. 
but there's something beautiful in it. And yep. uh, my hope is that you continue to find those diamonds in the midst of this pain. Well, and mine too. And, and I'll be honest, I have a I have a really good friend in Sarasota, and he's very successful. But he looks at me, and he says, "You're so you are the richest person I know, Mike." Mm. And he says, "Look at all the people that love you." And it really did come out during this. And I didn't know how to receive it for the longest time. And he says, look, anytime you have somewhere to go around the world and travel, God provides for you. He says, I have never met anybody uh, as rich as you are. And Bobby, you know, in my checking account, there will be rarely anything that hits uh, over $1,000 at any one time. It's because of the way we live. But God has been so good and so faithful. And, you know, even though I could not imagine living without Clary, um, I also understand the necessary necess- being necessary for me to be alive because I'm hoping that God could use me to just share the goodness of God. And, I, mm-hmm. and, and that is so important, especially in the world that we live in, especially the millennials. It's like you, you read the things that they read and I think they check their posts or Twitter accounts or you know social networks about 150 times a day. And, and if you look at the, what the world of information they're getting, it's causing confusion. And and when you ask them what does it mean to be spiritual, they go through all these different you know cultic uh, uh, icons or things like that, and they don't even have a clue how much they are loved, and that there's a God who who really just longs to be with them in a relationship. And then we wonder why are they so confused about life itself, and why is the rate of suicide so high amongst the millennials is because they don't even know what it means to be loved. If I didn't know the love of God and if I wasn't being held in these last 20 months, Bobby, and plus I have a history, you could say mental illness, which I would never confess publicly, but I had a God who didn't allow me to flip over to the dark side, didn't allow me to pick up uh, a weapon and, and hurt myself. Even when Clary passed, I had one of my nephew, she's a doctor, come in and say, listen, Curry had a lot of uh, drugs for her pain. She was in chronic pain. And they gave, every time she'd go to the doctors, they'd give her another prescription for this one or that one. And she rarely ever used it unless she was in pain, but she always saved everything. And I had my nephew come in and take every single one of those narcotics out of the house because I knew I would have been drawn to it because I once was on drugs. Right. And so right. I never wanted to, to really destroy myself. And and to be honest with you, Clary had a rough life. And there were still things going on that was, you know, all, things I won't talk about, but in the, and within our own house, or our own family, I put it like this. And one day when I asked the Lord, this goes back, it was July 16th, and she passed away May 28th. I, and I would sit there and I would just want to listen. Why, Lord? I had to understand this. He says, I've watched Clary from the time her father stole her innocence to now. He says, Mike, she would never want to leave you. She loved you, but I could not watch her be abused anymore. That's why he brought her home. Mm. And that brought comfort. And, and one day I was talking to her grandson, and, and, she, and I said, you know, you have to understand something. Grandmom didn't die. She just passed on. And I explained what, how literally the Lord's like a bridge. We don't die in the Lord. And it's just an amazing gift that she has. Now that I'm here, 20 months later, things that I'm working with, uh, with, with my partner in England, and I have such a hope of reaching this generation if God would give us the favor in this. And the millennial generation especially because no fault of their own. They are so distanced from a loving God. And, and it's really, they're innocent of being set, separated from him because yeah. maybe we dropped the ball in our generation, Bobby. Yeah, no, I believe that. I believe that we have, we have portrayed a God um, for too long that is condemning, that is retributive, that is um, out to get you, that is going to send you to hell if you don't say the right magic prayers and I just don't think that um, that is that is the true God. I think God is ever there, loving and wanting to welcome um, and to show not just 
in a in a in a book in the scriptures, but also in a real practical way. He wants to love us uh, in ways that, if we're open and we're looking and we're listening, but. Um, I think so for so long, uh, this young generation has heard from the previous generation, they're wrong, they're evil, they're sinful. Um, if you just come to God, you won't go to hell. And what, what's good news about any of that? Um, what, they, what they don't hear is that God loves them unconditionally and he wants to really wrap his arms around them and show them um, a life full of meaning and truth and beauty and what it means to truly be human, not just some sweet by and by, but actually in this life, they can experience something called abundance and love and, and, yeah. and, and unconditional mercy. And so, yeah, I think on some level, they haven't really heard what, what the truth is. Would you agree? I, I agree. And what we realize is that they're not going to listen to the four spiritual laws. They're not going to listen to somebody preaching, but they listen to testimony. They'll yes. listen to a story. Right. And I've always noticed that if I'm on a plane and there's a, there's a conversation taking place and people want to know a little bit about your life, I always have a story to tell them. Mm. And, and that is the one way that I'm learning to communicate more and more with the younger generation. And another way, another thing I had to learn is that I just can't come out and just blanket something and say this is absolute truth, although I believe it is. And I would just sit there and, and, and use the phrase, well, hypothetically. Right. What if what we're seeing, everything that's wrong in the world is because of our fallen nature? What if we see this great divide that we see now in America politically and everything else is because of a fallen nature? And not there's not – listen, there's no one real safe from this great divide. So when I dress it that way, what if your behavior or what you think you are, who you are, is because of a fallen nature – then people will listen and then we enter in the dialogue and conversation. But I also say this, if you ask me for what I believe is true, you have to promise me you're not going to hate me and come out in front of my house with picket signs and screaming and yelling things at me because that's the popular thing to do when you don't agree with somebody. Yeah, yeah. And I also think too, Mike, uh, tell me what you think about this is I think we deny the complexities of life and the beauty of the complexities of life. And we boil it down to two options and it's dual thinking. It's either or black or white, Republican or Democrat, yeah. right or left, wrong or right, Christian, non-Christian, heaven or hell, whatever you want to boil it down to, it's a denial of the realities of life because uh, you know you can say that it's either this or this, but the reality of life is that it's life can be complex and on any specific issue, um, there are many different facets and many different ways to look at those issues. And what I find, and I know you, you've you lived this in your life, is until you spend time with someone very different you, with you, from you and see the world through their eyes, it's easy to say that your way is the only way. But when you see yourself through the eyes of someone else who's very different than you, um, and who may be a different color, who may be a different socioeconomic state, um, then you can start to say, well, maybe, maybe I, maybe I do understand. Maybe I can see from their perspective, and maybe there is another way to see this. And maybe it's not just one way or the other, but maybe it's maybe there's a hundred ways to see this. And I think I think we've got to take the time because. You know, I've said that before on this podcast is that Jesus was always, they always tried to pigeonhole him into an either or question. And he always never played that game. You know, they said, you know, Jesus, yeah. who sinned, this man or his parents that he's born this way? And he's like, well, neither. Uh, be, be, he's this way that so, so that God's glory can be revealed. Uh, another time they said, hey, Jesus, uh, this woman's caught in adultery. It's pretty black and white. Uh, the law says to stone her. Uh, and he's like, yep, that's what it says. But how about the person without sin casting the stone? So Jesus was never – he would never play the game of either or black or white. Uh, not saying that there's not black and white issues. There are. But I think those are very, very few I think we try to we be in a certain tribe and it makes us feel better. Um, but if we're, if we're going to walk the Jesus way, if we're going to walk in his footsteps and we're going to 
trust what he said was the way to be the most loving and human, the most hu- uh, the best human we can be. Uh, we're going to have to spend time with others that are different. We're going to have to see things through their eyes. And at the end of the day, we're going to have to love the way he loved. So that that what what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's it's almost like I went to a, a number. I, I visit different churches, and I went to one that was very up in the Miami area, Millennial Church, and they're very impressive how many services they're doing a day. And you were, it's almost like you heard in so many people, and you heard them out, and you got it's far. It's like a, it's like a ministry on steroids, and there's all, and and it's good for the millennials. I get that. And the thing that I found distressing was that. They, they 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 have the outside appearance of it, but it's almost like there's an emptiness within that shell. And we we really develop an outwardly appearance of what we should look like, how we should, we should act, how we should behave. And it's almost like we, 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 we go to church on Sunday to get filled up, and then that should be able to keep us through the week, and then we return on Sunday the following week so that we're on empty. And we sit and we listen to a sermon, give them our tithes and our offerings, and then repeat the whole thing out. It's really the thing that really is sad, Bobby, and I'll talk about believers. Very few believers have ever really had an encounter or walking with with the Lord. I mean, if the Lord wanted us to just have some outwardly behavior, then why do we need a better covenant as the scriptures talks about? Why did Jesus have to come and, and, and die in such a painful way? Why did he go through all that? Because he wanted to have a relationship. He wants to be able to hold your hand. He wants to be able to be part of your life, part of your marriage. I, Clary and I were so radical that even before we would have intimacy, we just say, Lord, bless this time you created. Let us, let us just enjoy this time together. And, and the thing is, though, most believers, they have a head knowledge. So when things don't line up to what their head knowledge is or they use their, their minds like a computer set of scriptures against this or for this, they speak out of their mind what they know, but they're not speaking from the heart of God that he gave them a new heart when they were born into his kingdom. They don't have that heart relationship. So therefore, it's easier to be condemning. It's easier to be judgmental than being compassionate and loving and interceding on behalf of a person in prayer. So it's just easier to beat somebody up than to love somebody. Yeah, that's good. Well, Mike, thank you so much for this time. It's been um, life-giving and it's been encouraging. I know that it hasn't been easy to talk about the passing of of Clary, but I hope that you'll find some sort of of peace in that and that um, you'll continue to walk this walk. Uh, You are loved um, and you are are more than enough to, to... to take on what's ahead of you and your life's not over. There's great things in store for you. So I hope you, I hope you can take that and believe it and, and walk in it. I do. And I appreciate it. And I've always appreciate you and Kelly's friendship all these years, Bobby. Proud of you, man. All right, man. Talk to you soon. All right.